The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What is up? It is episode nine of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson. I'm coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I'm sitting down with a great studio touring drummer, uh, Blair Sinta. Um, if you're not aware of Blair's work, check out his YouTube page and also go follow him on Patreon. It is uh, Sticks and Wires with Ampersand Sticks, Ampersand Wires. Um, his touring and recording credits are insane. He's been the top of the game for the past 25 years. I first remember him with the Lance Moore set, but he's also worked with Ringo Starr, Annie Lennox, Gwen Stefani, Stevie Nicks, Chris Cornell, John Fogarty. Go just keeps going and going and going. He's great, great wealth of knowledge, tons of experience. Um, love snare drums just as much as I do, so we geek out for a full hour here. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Here is Blair Sinta. Well, Blair Sinta, welcome into the Drum Candy Podcast. Um, I'm stoked to ask you a bunch of questions. I have 12 questions here because I know we could probably go all day on snare drums, so I don't want to spend too much time on anything else. But um, first question, now that things are opening up in LA, how is the scene? Is it is it coming back to life or is it kind of staying where it was a year ago? Um, you know, to be, to be very honest, I haven't been out too much, but... Um, I do know that I've had some in-person sessions in my studio, which has been awesome. Nice. I had two last week. I have somebody coming over today. And um, I was talking to a friend the other day, and yes, people are starting to play clubs again. I think still a lot of it's outdoors, mm-hmm. and our, our mask thing ends on June 15th. Okay. Uh, so assuming everything continues to go in the right direction, I think things will probably go crazy right after that yeah Yeah. are you bringing artists in are you bringing other drummers in Uh, a little of both yeah Um, yeah i definitely record drummers like a decent amount uh you know the 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 few drummers that don't have a studio or maybe just kind of some of them do have a studio but they need something a little different because maybe they're in a practice space and it it's Mm. it's challenging audio wise um but uh, yeah, I had an artist here uh, last week, uh, a new artist named Lizzie McAlpine, who's like amazing. So I'm pretty excited for her, and I think she's she's got cool things coming up. So, you know, if I had it my way, I would always have just artists here. But yeah, yeah. but you know, I, I like to work. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is the um, for you the biggest difference between having the artist there versus them sending you a demo and just notes on what to do and yeah. overdubbing? Um, a lot of it's time. It's just faster communication. You know, mm-hmm. somebody literally doesn't like a kick drum pattern or uh, a snare sound or something that is handled within three minutes instead of 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just also depending on the demo, like where the demo's starting from. So if it's a fully produced track and drums are last, that's much easier because you have the sonic information of where you're supposed to sit, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
oh, this is the, this this kick drum f- sound fits the cymbals fit whatever, as opposed to getting a demo with like a kind of acoustic guitar and a vocal. You, right, you're setting up so much of the sonic palette for the song, and there can be like a thousand questions if if the references aren't there. And some people, you know, some people are really great at like, hey, I want it to sound like this, and other people are are still fishing, uh, which is cool. But that's that's when it gets really tricky. Yeah, I mean, man, we're getting right into the nerdy stuff, but yeah, <laughs> when faced with that situation, do you have a kit that you're like, I need to go just general purpose? kit for this or or didn't or like does that freedom give you more creative energy to like let me really sculpt a sound to build around or is it let me give you something middle of the road because i have no idea where this is going to go um i try to ask enough questions where i can really sculpt okay i hate the middle of the road thing I'm okay like, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this like at least give me a ballpark of what you want so i can like set it up for you mm. um because you know there can be a big difference between like a, a a '60s Ludwig kit and a DW kit, you know. Yeah. Like they could both be the exact same sizes, you know, sixteen, or thirteen, sixteen, twenty-two, but man, tonality, and and punch and uh, just like that can just be such a game changer, you know, and, or or how you mic the kit, you know, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. So, in fact, the when I was working with Lizzie last week, her her record, I played on. I think like ninety percent of her last record, which is called "Give Me a Minute," and that was like very, it's pretty mellow, really acoustic, really organic, um, really beautiful songs. But this time, it's a little more, I guess, edgy or rock. Okay. So you know, in my brain, I was like, "Oh, we're gonna." It's like Lizzie. I know what I'm gonna do. But it wasn't that, you know, and the fact that she was here and the producers were here was huge because I was like, oh, OK, because I needed to be said, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing this time. Mm, I see. Yeah. So did you have like something set up before she got there? Like this is going to be the sound. You had to just scrap it and start over. Um, I was pretty close, but it was, you know, part of it was like, how hard do you hit mm-hmm. the right symbols? Um, God, you know, all those all those choices that you're trying to make that that are going to give the best quality for everything, like the like, do you need this many options on mics, mm-hmm. or, or or is it better to go less? Because I'm really trying to trying to do less mics if I'm able to, because I feel like sculpting sound with less mics, where everything is super defined, is becoming is becoming like I don't want to say cooler, but I just feel like, man, if I have a, a kick mic, an overhead mic, and a mic that's distorted, and they're doing the job, then, like, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, why do you need that side snare mic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or what, yeah, why do you need 12 mics? You you don't, you know? I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe a set of rooms just, just for some ambience that you may or may not use. But, like, if you don't need tom mics, if you don't need a bottom snare mic, like, fucking, like, sorry. <laughs> I just made it the podcast explicit. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first one. No, you won't be the first one. I had to make someone else explicit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, it's all those questions that seem to go like every, the process just goes so much faster when, yeah. people, 
room, you know. Plus, it's just more fun, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so embarrassing, but I haven't made a record with anyone in the room, and I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, it's me overdubbing. Ninety nine percent of the time, and I know that it would be so much easier if like just come over, yeah. <laughs> just spend a, a day here. So I'm yeah. excited to get back to that. Um, yeah. Okay, before I go into my actual questions, another question. Mm -hmm. So I think in the beginning, whenever all drummers were starting to record, the rule was don't do anything to your tracks, send it off as raw and as, as natural as possible. I have done that and I've had terrible results because they didn't know how to mix them right. Mm -hmm. to whereas now I, I feel more confident where I'm gonna pre-mix the drums enough to where I know that at least you're getting a sound that that is what I was hearing versus straight off the microphone. And that myth of no EQ, no compression, that's always my, my least favorite. Like, here's what this drum sounds like, no EQ, no compression. Like, yeah, but you're still sending it through a microphone and you're still getting proximity effect and all that ugliness. Right. So where do you straddle that line of give them enough options or do you give it to you? Like, this is, this is the sound. Obviously you can mix it however you want, but this is pre-mixed for you. Yeah, I, I would say 90% of the time I'm, well, I'll just say this. There is never a time where I don't EQ. Mm -hmm. Never. Um, at, at least on the way in. Um, and then probably 90% of the time I'm sending stems that are mixed. And then, but it it's just, for me, it's uh, who am I sending it to? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you know, and this is occasionally, you know, like, like I've done tracks that I know are going to go to Bob Clear Mountain. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to touch those too much. Mm -hmm. you know, right, right. Like, why would you? Um, but of course, the majority of the time they're going to, I just try to gauge the level of the artist. Hey, do you, do you want these mixed? Do you need me to mix these more or less? Or is it better? Or, or are they more an engineer? Mm hmm. So oh, I just I just ask. I was like I was like, hey, do you, you know, how do you want this? Some people are going to use the two track, so I want to try to make oh, that wow. okay. as good as possible. You know, or at least definitely for tracking. You know, like they're going to build on top of it, and and I want them to have a very clear two track, so they don't have to like mix all the drums for that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there are very few people that say, hey, send it to me raw. Mm-hmm. You know, very few, but those are the people that are super, super hands-on, you know, and, but I feel like most people want it like, Hey, this is like when I'm sending it to them, like, here's the MP3, check this out. They want it to sound like how I've, how I've done it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's kind of a bit, also a bit of a result of everyone using samples. So we're kind of used to getting drum sounds that are ready to roll versus, you know, like some of the early sample software, like BFD. I remember their their marketing was these are raw sounds. Well, I think a lot of people end up using the other sample libraries because they were processed. They were they were ready to go. You didn't have to do you didn't have to scoop out two fifty hertz on every bass drum all the time. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I think it's and I yeah, and I think especially with things like splice and you know anything from native instruments or whatever, those things are so well mixed. Mm -hmm. Just the sounds themselves. Again, uh, people are just used to like, uh, you know, kind of drag and drop, or right. Yeah. So when did you first get into recording, and was it always like a 
a goal or a diversion? Um, I mean, I always wanted to be a studio drummer. Mm-hmm. But I, the idea of, well, you know, it's kind of weird because when I moved to LA in 96, um, I moved into a house with some guys that had Pro Tools in 96. Okay. And then, you know, I was within like a week or two of moving to LA. I was in like a, I was in a band and they were like, yeah, we're going to record in the house here. And I was like, oh, mm. cool. So immediately I was in this home studio environment, which I'd never been in when I was in Texas at school. Um, and then, uh, you know, I finally got a road gig after a couple of years and I, I went on the road for like a year. And when I got home from that, I was like, oh, I don't want to live on a bus or a van my whole mm. life. Uh, and that, that was a catalyst of me, you know, learning how to write songs, learning how to re- starting to learn how to record. And then uh, it's trying not to be too long winded. You know, I, I knew I wanted a place where I could at least practice drums, like have a house or whatever. And when I did that, I immediately converted the garage. So I had a place not only to practice, but, you know, take the gear, the minimal gear that I had at that time to start recording. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, that was around 2004, you know, there was like a, uh, that's when the business was starting to change. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create my own studio career. Mm-hmm. And it felt, it felt a bit impostery at the time, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, well, if I'm not working in real studios, then I'm not really doing this. But man, by like 2008, 2010, it was like, yeah, what's a real studio? <laughs> it's just how the business works, you know? Yeah. So in a weird way, I wanted to do it, but I also fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first become aware of drum sound versus just, you know, play the drums, crank uh, the snare, play the drums? So here's, here's, here's two answers for this. I think the earliest awareness of drum sound for me was like Alex Van Halen. Okay. When I was like 13, because his snare drum always had this like sound. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, that's, you knew it was him, right? It was like, that's, a, that's an original snare sound. And then there were guys that always stuck out, like Steve Jordan, um, you know, that just had very defined sounds. It's, and I was always aware of that. I'm not sure, but that was still like crank the snare drum, right? It was like, mm-hmm. well, I want that thing. I think the sound thing itself um, started to become more important to me when I really started to record myself and, mm. and play on like real legitimate records, like in in big studios. Then it was like, oh, you if you want to do this, you have to have a handful of kits that make different sounds, so you can pivot, you know, around there. So I would I would say like. That was, again, that was around 2004, 2005 for me. Mm -hmm. So I was like into my, how old was I then? 30s. Mm -hmm. Where that really became like defining like, oh, it's not, you can't just have one or two sets of symbols. You got to have like different colors and different palettes. So what was your first like new sound that you brought into your collection? Was it a kit? Was it snares? Was it cymbals? When you're like, I need to get some something different. What did you get? I think I think it was like vintage kits, mm. like my '65 Ludwig that I 
that I still have. Uh, and then, of course, collecting snares. Mm-hmm. Because that was, you know, I think it still kind of is. I don't know if it's as big of a deal, but um, hopefully that didn't come up. Um, did that come up? No, I heard a ding. <laughs> um, uh, I think that, you know, especially like it was like, oh, Kenny Aronoff would go to a session in the 90s with like 50 snare drums in a case. And that was like, ooh, yeah, cool. I want that. You know what I mean? <laughs> So that part of that was just like, you know, I want to have, you know, quote unquote, 50 snare drums to to show up to a session with. Yeah. But then it became like, oh, it's not just that. It's like, okay, should this be like a vintagey thing? Should it be like smaller kick drums that do very specific things? Uh, big, you know, a, a 24 or a 26 that does a thing, mm-hmm. you know, 12, 12 and 14 toms as opposed to like, you know, 13, 16, or even 14, 18, like those things became like apparent on records, like to me around then. It was like, oh, that's what that's doing. And that was still, I think, a long learning on process. Okay, here's a certain drum. It does a certain thing. How many ways can I tune this and still get what I want? Or do I really need to change the drum and still tune it there to really get the, the, the sound that I'm looking for, you know? So do you tend to keep drums tuned one way and just swap them out, or do you have, you know, three sounds per drum that you, you like, if you pick a drum, you know it's sort of right to ballpark, didn't you fuss with tuning, or is it just, give me a different drum if it's not working? I, th- uh, I think probably the first. Like, I know, like, what I'm going to, when I'm listening, like, let's say somebody says it, sends a demo, so I was literally just doing this before we got on the call. I have a tune to do right after this. There are demo drums, and I'm just listening to, and I know this writer. We've worked together a lot. So I know that what he's choosing on there is, you know, in the ballpark of, like, what should be happening on the song. Mm. It's pretty well thought out. So, you know, I'm listening. I, I, I play the tune in this room. I go into my tracking room, and I kind of, like, stare at my snare wall, and I go, like, okay, it's either this one or this one. I'm going to start with this one, and then I'll tune that because I know tonal- tonality-wise that's in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And I will tune it accordingly based on that. Yeah. So what are your top three most used drums? Okay. So by far, my most used drum is my Chris Hewer Chris uh, Drum Paradise snare that I probably bought in, I don't know, 2005 or so. So it's a six and a half. Um, I think it's those World Max shells. Okay. Like a black beauty um, kind of thing. Yeah, it's a diecast hoop. Uh, it's got a, the, I think the forty-eight strand strainer on it. That I think I might have switched that. I can't remember if that came with that. With a uh, coated CS black dot head, mm-hmm. and that does a lot of work. It just works on so many things. Crank the crap out of it. Put it super low. Make it dead. Rings. It's got a great touch. It just has a really great all-around tone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be my my for sure go-to first call snare. Uh, second, man, second's tricky. You know, it's funny. So I have a six-and-a-half steel Keplinger. Okay. That also, man, it's... 
It lives in a similar world as that, as that hewer, but it's like a little more quirky, mm-hmm. a little more pong to it. Like, um, it kind of does that Matt Cameron, you know, funky ring thing. But it also sounds great at like any pitch, and that's also a six and a half. I feel like I should grab these and hold them up. Here. <laughs> yeah, if you got them, let's see them. <laughs> see them? I'll yeah. grab them. Okay. <laughs> So this is the this is the hewer. This is the hitmaker, as as it's called, right? Can you see that? Yeah, right on. So that's the. It's not a seamless brass, right? It's a, a welded brass shell, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is it sounds really good. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like everybody has one of these, kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the Keplinger. Oh. Things like thirty pounds, right? This is the this is the steel Keplinger, not fragile, right? Mm-hmm. No re rings, no nothing. Um, and this thing is just it's just amazing. It just does so much, you know. So how do you go for one or the other? You know, it's that weird like feel thing. It's like which one feels right for mm. the tune. Um, you mean feel when you play it, or like just the ephemeral feeling? Yeah. Like vibe, yeah. I mean, I do that with hi hats a lot. I know we're talking snares, but I do that with hi hats a lot. Like if I get into tracking something and I feel like the hi hats are not right, even though I I would imagine ninety percent of people don't care. Mm-hmm. I will I will change hi hats because it just to me it just like it's just that thing of like that's it's just not right, you know. Whether it's like a set of fourteens or fifteens or um something like slightly more crustier than cleaner. It's just one of those weird, Mm. uh, how would I put it? It's like, uh, it's, you know, you know, if you're walking around and you notice your shoelace is untied (laughs) and you're like, (laughs) something feels weird. You're like, Oh, my shoelace is untied. To me, it's like that, you know, that's interesting. So it's not even like a pitch or necessarily or a heaviness. It's a, what is it that cues you that it's wrong? I just it's the way it sits in there sonically. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think some of it's visceral too. Like uh maybe the tune is slower so I'm going to I automatically think okay, I have room for more hi-hats, more 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 like sonic space or or timing, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if something fast, I almost I, I almost automatically think okay, I'm going to go with 14-inch hats instead of 15s because things just have to react quicker. So smaller cymbals are going to react quicker. Mm-hmm. Um so what so, would be your number three most used snare? Okay, so right now, I'm just going to say right now. Well, okay, so normally I would say number three would probably, man, this is a this is a really hard question, top three. <laughs> this is know. a tough question. I, <laughs> I would either go with Superphonic, a five-inch Superphonic from the 30s that I have with two lugs, right? Okay. Or... Or my Singerland uh, Radio King, which is like an eight uh, 1930s. Okay. And that's super fat, but it also sounds great when you crank it up. Like, it just, 
you know that thing works a lot but th- but that's a very specific type of track right like an old wood drum you know that's that doesn't fit through like a sonically deep track and mm-hmm. my I feel like wood I feel like metal snare drums work better with more complex dense tracks you know um but my new favorite snare is the DW carbon fiber Carbon fiber. I've only played a few of those, and I've been knocked out every time I play one. Yeah, Kids let me too. let me grab it. Hang on. Okay. So I did. I demoed a few of these for DW. Um, and cool. I did demo did the six and a half and the five, and man, this thing, it just works. It's really dry, which I love because, uh, you just don't like. Of course, it it can be ringy if it's wide open, but it just um, like especially as opposed to that Keplinger. The Keplinger is like a presence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a. It's like got a pong. It's got like a. It's kind of like in here, right? Mm-hmm. This it kind of like. It kind of like. Um, it's so funny to try to put these things into words. Um, this drum. It just it happens and then it's gone. Yes, I know what you mean. It's almost like it's like a invisible. It's a shapeshifter. It kind of. Yeah. It but it's got a. It's got a great tone also. So it's not like it's it's not like it's like generic, you know. Mm-hmm. It's very it's got a very specific sound, but it's also the dryness of it, it just It's like hi, bye. Right. Hi, bye. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you played a carbon fiber kit? I haven't. Have you? Yeah, Canopus sent me one to review years ago and it was so much fun. It was exactly what you're saying. It was like the most amazing sound and it just disappeared. It was I so didn't even beautiful. know there were carbon fiber kits that existed. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's probably super light too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was special. Yeah, that was one of those kits where I'm like, man, if I had some cash, I would hang on to this one. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what happened with like these this DW. I was like I was like I'm not giving this back. I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like this is living here. It's too good. The six and a half was great too, but I, there's something about the five that I really liked. You know. So the, would those be the same four drums that if I if someone called you t- tonight and said I need you in the studio tomorrow, just bring four drums and we're going to do a bunch of different stuff? Well, is that what you would grab, or would you go with a different selection? That would be different because since, especially if I didn't know what I was getting into, mm-hmm. um, I would definitely take the Hewer. I would definitely take the Radio King. I would take some sort of like smaller, like piccolo-ish drum. Um, mm-hmm. I have an Aot, a three by thirteen Aot that's cool. got wood hoops, and that really works well for a lot of things, pitch-wise, and uh, it, it's just a it's a unique character. So that would come with me. So that'd be three. Um, I would definitely take my Superphonic, which is a f- which is a five inch Superphonic, because I-, I crank that more. Like I don't tune that down so much. I I crank that. So that's mm-hmm. like really great, uh, like high kind of ringy, brighter brighter than the Hewer. Mm-hmm. 
I would take that, and then I would take probably one more oddball drum. Um, what would I take? Uh, maybe another wood drum, like a five-inch wood drum, something like older, mm. like a maybe a Ludwig Pioneer. Okay, that's three that, ply, right? Yeah, just that way I've covered all bases um, on like. You know, I know that I can tune the hewer anywhere, and that's going to work for like a like a big rock track. Mm-hmm. Or I have the superphonic that would probably cover different parts of that if I needed it. I have some wood drums that, if it's like kind of an organic rootsy thing, you know, I have pitches covered for that or a very wide open sound. Then I have the the ayat, which kind of can live in a pop tune or kind of can live in like a very kind of delicate, quiet world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, f- I feel like between those, I'm pretty, I pre- feel pretty safe, you know, like going minimal, you know. So it sounds like the Huber would be your one drum, but if I said you can only use one drum for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So again, uh, those of you listening, that is a six and a half by fourteen black nickel brass shell with die cast hoops. Most likely a world max shell, but it could be something else. But it's yeah, probably one point five or one millimeter thick or something like that. It's not super thick, right? No, no, it's not thick. It's, it's a fairly light drum. Yeah. Yeah. So any kind of black beauty style drum. Do you think the die cast hoops are what make the difference? Um. I really like diecast, and I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it without. It's funny. I was looking at my DW nickel over brass or black over nickel, black over mm-hmm. nickel, uh, which is also great. And that doesn't have diecast. I do think there is something about the diecast that gives it like a. Uh, it it does give it some 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 zen, you know, or some mm-hmm. some. What's the word I'm looking for? A thang. Gives mm-hmm. it a thang. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's, something about the look, there's something about the look of tube lugs and a die-cast hoop, too, that is just badass. Right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, it looks it like you mean business. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I've been circling around the question. What was your first snare drum? Ah, Maybe you can actually help me answer this. So my first kit was a Tama Swing Star. Yep. And it had that six and a half. Yep. Just metal. One of these. This is what everyone. I mean, this is the five, but with the with the beaded four beads. That's it. Yep. Everyone okay. says the same thing. Yep. And Which that's what wild. I used to. That's what I used to tape up with Gaff to try to get the Alex Van Halen thing. <laughs> what is the secret? Does he do? Was it like a square of tape? What does he do? Well. I mean, I might get, you know, there's there's a thousand opinions on this, right? <laughs> I used to watch that Live Without a Net video. You, I don't, you know. I don't know so, that one. Like 1986, first, you know, Sammy Hagar was in the band. It was like 5150 record, and there was a live concert video. And to me, it looked like he had like just four or five strips of tape just over the center. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> I think Blair has the Alex Van Halen drum ready to go. Let's see what we got. And of course he's got one. <laughs> of course he's already got it set up All right. for it. All 
All right, so y- you actually just forced me into a- an interesting position. So I just made a uh, a video, and it- it's going to be on my Patreon. And I- my friend Pete Thorne, who's an amazing guitar player, was a big YouTube guy, and just we've we've played on we played with Chris Cornell and Melissa mm. Edwards together. And Pete, he can really nail nail that Van Halen tone. So we I did like a five mic setup getting the Alex Van Halen sound. Oh, nice. And Pete, we did Unchained. We did half of Unchained. And it's like, when it starts, I mean, if I can say so myself, it's kind of like, whoa. Like, (laughs) you're kind of waiting for Dave to come in. So anyway, I just did this. So if you can't see it, it's literally like uh, three pieces of gaff tape in a triangle around the head. And um, Around the black dot. So the black dot is crucial, right? Yeah, I think the black dot's crucial. And this is a... Six and a half superphonic mm-hmm. in the seventies. I don't know that that was his drum or not, or if he used a brass shell. Mm. Um, but it looks like this. But it, but there are some videos where I saw it like this, and this seems to be doing this sound. It's like, and if you EQ some like uh, you know, anywhere between one sixty two twenty, get some of this that weird mid rangey thwack in mm-hmm. it. It's pretty that's close. It. Yeah, so that's going to be on my Patreon if anybody wants to go deep on. Nice. So is that uh, patreon.com slash Blair Sinta or is this another? Uh, it is is sticks and wires. Sticks, ampersand wires or sticks word and? Uh, ampersand. Sticks, so if you, ampersand wires. Yeah, so if you go to Patreon and do sticks and wires, it'll be on there. Yep. Nice. Yep. Sweet. So your first drum inspired you to go deep diving on the Alex Van Halen years later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny because I was actually going to do this a couple years ago and I just, I just, I was like, don't do, you're going to get crucified, dude. Don't do this. Because if you go through a Van Halen record, it's different. Like every mm. tune is different, you know, yeah. every tune, like the tuning is different. Like, I feel the same way with Zeppelin. Everyone says John Bonham snare sound, but what? Which record? Which song? Which right? You know, which tour? <laughs> it's right. all different. Right. Exactly. So you can pick a specific tune and like, well, this is the pitch. You know, you just match it to the pitch. You're like, that's that. Like when the levy breaks, obviously it's like two mics, and like if you match the pitch of that, it's yeah. it sounds pretty close. You know. Uh, the Alex thing is a little weird because I I feel like a lot of it's in his hands, you know. Yeah, he's like a really inexplicable cat. <laughs> yeah, I think his signature sticks are gigantic too. I, I imagine a two B would be required or something. Yeah, he uses tree trunks for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I I think that's part of it too. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, do you still have your original Swing Star drum or is it long gone? And I I wish I did. No, that's. That's long gone. Man, those kits were everywhere, and for whatever reason, I remember they were, like, not cool. For some reason, that the time of rock stars and swing stars, they, they were better than everything else, but for some reason, they weren't cool. I don't know why. Maybe because they were everywhere? That, I mean, that's probably part of it. Um, uh, you know, in fact, I would love to hear one right now because my recollection of it is that that was a really good-sounding kit. Mm-hmm. Um, with the giant power toms, right? The yeah, top. yeah. Was was it black? Uh, red. Mine was cherry red. Nice. I had a cherry yeah. red export. That was my first okay. kit. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was the other thing. It was either a Tama, a, a Tama Rockstar Swingstar, or or an export, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But the first, my first uh, drum set gig was with my fifth grade band. We did Louie Louie, mm-hmm. and I played the drum set part. And when we did the concert, it was at a different school, and they had a Tama black uh, rock star kit, mm-hmm. black pinstripe heads. I, they must have had those Remo muffles underneath the heads because it just sounded like like a perfect oh, right. sound. Right. Right. <laughs> That's just so stuck in my head, and the bass drum was like so punchy. I couldn't get my export to do that. No, at the time I had a Black Hawk out of the Sears catalog. I could not get my Black Hawk to sound anything like that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the you know the funny thing is, especially like so. I'm thinking like mid '80s, right? Like the school kit was a Ludwig. Probably it was probably a '60s Ludwig kit. Yeah, like, probably. Yeah, white marine pearl, and you know, in my mind. That thing was a piece of crap, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it was. T- it wasn't tuned well, but it was always just like, Ugh, like I don't want to play this thing. And then, of course, my Tamakit was like, ah, oh, this thing is dope, right? Um, <laughs> and now, you know, of course, it's like that. That Ludwig kit is definitely a go-to. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, exact same situation. My middle school had. They inherited the high school's old kit, which was a. I don't know what year, but when Ludwig was doing school colors, so you could get a sparkle in two colors, and we had garnet and gold, and it had a 24-inch bass drum, and it sounded yeah. so bad. Right. But the bass drum was like the best bass drum sound I've ever heard in my life. Right. But the toms, were they had the original heads on it and everything. Right, some but, Weather King? Weather King? Yeah, like the clear, heavy, whatever yeah. they were called. And I... And, yeah. Like for years, I was like, someone has to have this kit. Like, where is it? They must have thrown it in a dumpster, unfortunately. Right. Right. Yeah, I remember that distinctly. 24-inch bass drum in middle school. It was the most massive, with the silver dot, of course. Yeah. And then and then Grohl, Grohl was probably the last guy to play one of those kits, right? Like, Yeah, that's right, yeah. You know, I mean, that was like, the like he played that in Nirvana. <laughs> right. <laughs> with the floor Thomas, rock Thomas. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, like, he, he rocked that thing in Nirvana, and like, probably haven't seen one since, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So what was the first, like, snare drum you bought with the intention of i'm getting a snare drum i need, oh, I need a snare drum. it is a sad story i bought a noble and cooley um frankly i don't even remember what it was i just knew that it sounded awesome and it was like i paid 500 bucks for it and, mm. and uh it was it was it was kind of like a blonde wood maybe a little darker than blonde but like and it it just had a pop you know, I was tuning snare drum still fairly high at that mm-hmm. point. It sounded it such a great drum. I wish I knew what exactly what it was. And then I left it at the Roxy one night. Oof. Yep. Loading out of the club quickly, you know, because they throw you out of the stage into the alley. You know, you're trying to pack your stuff up, mm-hmm. you know, throw it in your car. And somehow it got left on the stage, like in the, in the bustle of like grabbing amplifiers and drums and whatever i went back the next day it was gone oh yeah man i wonder how many records that drum has since shown up on without you knowing about it did ross garfield take it <laughs> i know right i know the guy in the next band was like woohoo like i'll take this you know probably been sold on ebay like nine times by now but yeah that was a great drum was it a shallow drum yeah it was a five yeah yeah Orcs Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. 
Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Okay, then what did you replace that with? Um, I had a pork pie for a minute. Again, I don't know what it was. It was a wood drum, five-inch wood drum. But not long after that got, uh, is when I got hired by Alanis Morissette, and I became an AOT endorser. Mm-hmm. And they made me... Here's another big regret. They made me... Uh, I, I played this kid for about four years on the road, but it was a 17-ply uh, wood snare. I don't remember what the wood was, with wood hoops. Mm-hmm. And that snare was killer. Just amazing. And I beat the piss out of it. Um, <laughs> and I, I had to get new hoops a few times on the road. But man, for some reason, at some point, I sold that kit. I mean, I became a DW endorser. So I sold the kit, but I should not have let go of that snare drum. Mm. Um, and I know, I know where the kit. Well, I, I knew, I know who I sold it to, and somehow it ended up in like Hawaii or something like that. And I asked, I asked if I could buy back the snare at one point, and he said no. <laughs> but I don't know where it is now, but that snare drum was killer, you know. Wood hoops. So, you ever, have you tried throwing wood hoops on other drums to get that sound back? Um, I have. I, I tried. Who was making those? I don't know if it was a generic company or maybe Yamaha or. There's a bunch. I mean, we saw them at Drum Factory Direct too. We have our okay. own. But yeah, there's okay. Yamaha, Gibraltar. Yeah. Um, I've tried and I've. It's never. It's never been the same. In fact, mm. I've. I. I. I still have two AOT snares that are great, but not like that one. Um, and those have wood hoops, but I don't. In fact, that one I was talking about, the red one that I, I would take on a session. But mm-hmm. I don't do rim shots on that drum. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but those other hoops to me don't really do it. I don't, I don't know if it's just my palate has changed, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really do it for me. Oh, so the Ayat had um, like bass drum style hoops, right, with claws. Yeah, it wasn't like the ones that had the holes in them. Right, right. So I don't know if there was more resonance to that because of that. Mm-hmm. I hated. I mean, I didn't have to change the head. I had a tech during that period, but like, man, those things were pain in the. <laughs> you know? Especially during the show, if like a head broke or oh, something. Yeah. Oh man, um, but uh, that's probably a big difference. I would imagine sonically. Yeah, I'm going to be exploring hoops on on this podcast. So I'll bring you back on when we get to that. Okay. We'll- do some critical listening. Maybe maybe I'll try to find that drum before we do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty idea. unique color, so I I would know if it if that's the drum. So, <laughs> so at this point, I assume your collection is relatively complete as far as snare drums. But is there something you're still chasing, or as a secondary question, what do you look for when you're considering adding another drum to your collection? I like this question. 
Um, yes, I am complete. I could care less if I own another, ever get another snare drum. Mm-hmm. That being said, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. Um, when I when I demoed this carbon fiber, I was like, "Wow, that's a really unique sound that I don't have." Mm-hmm. So that was really cool um, to find that sound, um, and it has been super useful for me. Um, and what else? Uh, the cherry. Uh, sorry, what are they called? They're making a new. There's a new wood. Uh, what is it? What is it? What is it? I'm totally blanking. I don't know. Ah man, I'm blanking. Purple heart. Purple heart. Yeah. I the purple it out heart. Of thin air. <laughs> yeah, the purple hearts sound pretty awesome. You know. So what um, is that giving you? Again, that's so hard to put into words. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but it's. It's a uh, wow, thicker. I don't know. You know, the one I have is a piccolo, so it's a mm. f- fourteen by three point five, right? Because it's one of those pie snares. Okay, three point one five. Sorry, three point one four. One four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I do know what pie is, uh, <laughs> but that thing has a really interesting character. So my whole thing is like I don't, I could care less. One of one of my favorite snare drums is my Kent snare drum, which is like a forty dollar mm-hmm. crappy thing from sixties or seventies, and that thing costs yeah it cost me forty bucks. That's an incredible tone. Yeah. So I could care less how much it costs or whatever. I'm just looking for like a unique tone. Um, mm-hmm. If I was going to get something, um, I feel like I have most of those bases covered, so I wouldn't need anything. But the one thing that I covet. And I could probably sell most of my snare drums, and would have to sell most of my snare drums to get would be a '80s bell brass. Mm, yes, the Holy Grail. I mean, it just, it just, it's just uncanny. It just works. Yeah. Um. And whenever I'm on a session, that's what I ask for, and I usually never have to tune it, and I usually wow. never change it. It just sits everywhere. So it's not too much of a rock and roll drum for you. I mean, the few, the few times, I mean, you know, when I think about it, like I did kind of like a metal session a few weeks ago at East West and, and that was, that was that. And that was definitely appropriate. But then I, uh, I played on like a pop record, this guy, Louis Tomlinson, the guy from uh, One Direction, I, I played on his record like a year or two ago. And that was that, that drum just sat there. Hmm. It just worked, you know, like there's, like there's the depth, there's a high end, there's a crack. It just it just sits, you know. It just like fits anywhere, and you and of course dynamically, it it just you can choose how hard you hit it, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've never had one in my studio here at home, mm-hmm. so maybe it would react differently in a room like this. But right. to me, I feel like if I own that drum, I could probably sell twenty others. Oh, yeah, you're not the first person that said that. I think uh, I think Matt Chamberlain said that at one point. Oh wow, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, so, I don't. I don't know what it is, man. It just, it just does the thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Two two questions, and we'll wrap it up. We'll let you get to your session. Um, tuning wise, do you have like a routine that you go to with snare drums to get to know a drum, or um, 
And then the secondary question, how do you know when you found it's like, quote unquote, happy place? I'm not sure I think of drums as having a happy place. Mm, Snare drums, okay. anyway. Um, to me, the sign of a good drum, unless it's a totally unique thing like the Kent drum we were just talking about, mm. is something that is versatile and, and works at many pitches. Okay. It, speak, it speaks at many pitches. Um, to me, that that's a sign of like something that will work well for me. And the other thing would be you know, I often am tuning to the pitch of a tune mm -hmm. somewhere in there and just going, you know, going around the lugs and just finding like the intonation being correct with, with a song. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and if the, obviously if there was a drum that I couldn't do that with, cause the, but usually it's the head that's wonky, you know, mm -hmm. but if there's something that I just couldn't get in that zone, then I would reconsider the drum probably. Um, yeah. Wild. So when you put a fresh head on, do you, you shoot for over-tightening and then bring it down, or you get it to a certain middle range? Uh, yeah, I usually put it on, crank it up a bit, and just crack out the, 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 the glue, you know? Mm -hmm. But I don't like to leave it there too long, because I don't want it to like affect the head too much, you mm -hmm. know? So right. I'll crank it up, and then I'll just bring it down to like... I mean, I guess I'm a medium to low pitch guy like go to you know mm -hmm. my thing is like medium to low so then i bring it back down and just get it to where it's speaking nicely um but i, I usually don't i guess i don't think of that as like oh that's the um that's the uh sweet spot that's you know i think i guess i think of that as the head more than the drum mm -hmm. because i feel like as long as the head is in tune the drum should also be speaking mm-hmm Yes, yeah. I'd had two more questions, but you keep leading me down to another question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I literally have two more questions. Do you ever record a snare drum wide open? Is that ever an option? Or does it always require some amount of dampening? It is pretty rare. It is pretty rare. Sometimes you get the the wily rock track where that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. But man, that is hardly ever. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you start with? A little bit of gaff tape, a ring? What do you, what's your starting point? I do the gaff thing just in a little circle. Put it, yep. you know, like somewhere between a half an inch and, and right on the edge into a, like I say, a half an inch in. And then I go, and then I'll come in. Maybe I'll add another somewhere, like across, like, uh, you know, 12 o'clock across from it. Mm -hmm. um, lately, I've been using the BFD... Uh, I don't know what the, the name of it is. Just that thin ring around the edge. Mm -hmm. Yep. Makes and that, snare drum. Yeah, that thing seems to do a lot of what I need to do. Where it takes away the overtones, but there's it doesn't kill the kill the life. Mm -hmm. Um. So I that's almost like a go to at this point on any drum. Okay. Um, and what is and that it, model? Ben was just telling me about that one. Um, yeah. I could look it up we'll real get quick. info on it. Yeah. Um, that thing is great. And then uh, I still use um, I still use like a, uh, a bandana a bit. Do you, you know? we have like a, a method you fold it in half or thirds I, or quarters? How's it, how's it wrapped up? Yeah, probably in like quarters, like pretty thin. Okay. And then I just, and then I just 
you know, I just find like somewhere, you know, the last what what is that quarter of the drum? Find mm-hmm. out where where it's sitting best, but the tone is still good. Yeah, and I just you know see how much of the handkerchief should be on there, and then I gaff it there so it doesn't move. All right, last question. Yep. I've already gone. I've, this drum has already been kind of put through the ringer with all the previous guests, but okay. if I handed you this, this is a gig percussion snare. Okay. I thought originally it was probably made by Pearl, but now I'm thinking it might be made by Tama, but it's definitely made in Japan. It says so on the badge. Okay. <laughs> if I gave this to you, original form, it had really crappy broken triple flange hoops. Um, the the throw off I still haven't changed, so that is still yet to be cool. you know, updated. Yeah. I did put die cast hoops on it last week and, and that made a huge difference. So I'm really excited to explore hoops like in greater detail. But if I gave you this drum, let's say with the rusty original triple flange hoops on it, what would you do with it to get it to work? Either on a session or a gig or whatever? Uh, this is an awesome question. <laughs> First thing I do is see if it's what it sounded like in its form that it came to me in. You know, and if it had a unique character, I would just leave it. Mm. Let's put it this way. So my mom was a public school teacher and uh, there was a drum that was sitting in her music room for like years, like years. Never got done. And she finally like just gave it to me. And it's like a it's a mid sixties Ludwig wood wood drum and it's got the head is like it's messed up. The head messed up. And I tried to change the head once in the, like the new head just, it just sounded like crap. I was like, whoa. So I put the old head back on and it's always been on there. And that drum has the mojo. So I would, (laughs) my first thought is I wouldn't do anything to it. I would just see if it had a thing. Yeah. You know, the next thought, I would probably do what you did is put some die cast on there. And then according to like, how the drum reacted, I would either put an ambassador, coded ambassador, or a black dot on there. Mm. You know, and then I've noticed that, like, some, sometimes the black dot just kills the tone for certain drums. Mm-hmm. And others, for me, it's just like, oh, that brings out the magic. You mm. know? So to me, it would just be like a hoop and a, and a head thing. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it, it, this became, I mean, I did a session yesterday with it because it was there. I'm like, let me just try this drum. The diecast hoops made all the difference. I was I was kind of shocked because before it was, it was kind of wild and crazy. I'm like, yeah, I could use this if I want something wild and crazy, but this is a song where I just want a snare drum, it's like snare drum, and it was like, cool. I don't need to change it. Right. <laughs> Let's just so it got its maiden voyage on a real recording. Yeah, with heavy ass diecast tubes. Yeah, I do feel kind of weird putting, you know, eighty dollars worth of hoops on a thirty dollars. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, I mean, if it becomes a, I mean, I heard it on Instagram, right? That's the one that's on Instagram. Yeah. 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 I mean, it you know, works. Hey, it's better than like, you know, shelling out 1200 bucks for a drum, right? <laughs> I've done that too. Don't, yeah. don't shame me, Blair. <laughs> yeah. I, I've done it too. I've done it too. You know, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all about character, though. You know, I, I, like I feel like I'm going down that road with microphones now too. Mm. Like, I got enough clean, nice, pristine microphones. I kind of want dirty, weird-sounding things mm-hmm. to, to bring out characters. You know, so like to me, everything is good if it if it does something interesting. 
you know there's no such thing as like this this is good and this sucks yeah right what is good well, i mean this this was garbage this was literally in a dumpster and yeah i think it sounds all right so yeah you really found it in a dumpster it was rescued by a friend of mine he got it out of, out of someone's trash pile and just sent it to me awesome <laughs> yeah, and I've got a few of those. I've got a Superphonic. I did that, and I have a um, Slingerland, one of their like solid brass, chrome over brass, from the 50s. Yeah, found it in my high school dumpster. Whoa. I just said, hey, I'm taking this, so just be aware. <laughs> <laughs> and right. those two drums I've used more than anything else, that 5x14 chrome over brass Slingerland and yep. a 6.5x14 Superphonic. Wow, man. What a find. Yeah, zero dollars. <laughs> there you go there you go all right Blair I won't take up any more of your time I appreciate you sitting and chatting snare drums in our safe space here of drum candy Um, if you want to check out Blair's uh, YouTube channel it's under your name right Blair Sinta yep if you want to support him on Patreon it is um, sticks ampersand wires yep I definitely go check out when you put the Van Halen thing up is it up you know, I might do it right now. <laughs> All right, so check no, out well, his Van Halen yeah. snare sound. It'll be up, yeah. And uh, other than that, where else can they find you? Your website, BlairSinsa.com? Just on my website, I'm available for sessions and teaching. I teach audio recording and, of course, drums uh, through my website. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, joining in. If you're okay with it, I'm going to bring you back on for a future episode, too. I love it, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. All right, great. Thanks. Right. See ya. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Blair Sinta. Now it's time to check out a snare drum. So in the interview, Blair was talking about an Ayat wood hoop drum that got away from him early in his career. And it reminded me that I have a drum, a wood hoop maple drum by Ty that isn't an Ayat, but it was made by Ayat, Ray Ayat. So Ray Ayat, who had Ayat drums, went on to become president of Ty drums for a while. And this was early, uh, mid-2000s. So probably 2005, six, something like that. Uh, Ray made me a drum and I got it. Um, I picked it up at the NAMM show that year. So we're going to check it out. It's one of my favorite drums. And it is, um, I wanted to drop it in so you could hear what wood hoops do. It's a, it's a maple shell. I mean, it's a very good quality maple shell, but it's a maple ply shell with 14 ply wood hoops on it. And it's the same setup as I did for every other demo we've had in this this podcast since the beginning. So same room, same drummer. Uh, I did add a closed mic on the snare top and bottom. But other than that, and it's the it's the same general sound, same minimal mixing. So you can kind of hear what, what wood hoops do to a drum. Um, I have it tuned C sharp over G in the beginning. Then I crank it up and I just start backing it down. No muffling, coated uh, Emperor Batter, uh, Pure Sound 20 strand wires, I believe, and it might still have the original bottom head on it. Um, it's a really cool drum. It definitely a fatness to it that um, is pretty special. No, no overtones that I need to muffle out. Rim shots sound really nice and full. Rim clicks are really dense. Um, so if you're thinking about you know something to do with your drum. To make it sound different, get yourself a set of wood hoops and just mess around with them. Um, drum Factor Direct has a, bun- a bunch of options. You have the ones like on this tie drum, which are essentially like small bass drum hoops. So you need to have claws. We had, you know, we've got those. We also have ones that have, you know, holes put in them. So you don't need the claws. But anyway, it's a good option just to change up your sound. 
It's a very versatile sound, surprisingly. Uh, this drum has been used a lot when recording, and I did take it on the road for a while. So here it is. Let's check it out. So here's the, this is called the Thai, I believe it was called the Specialty Original uh, with Sugar Maple Wood Hoops.
All right. And that is it for episode nine. If you like the show, please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and give us a nice five-star rating and drop a review. That'll help spread the word. And next week I am sitting down with Gunnar Olson and then I've got a few other guests I have to book. So I'm out of my, uh, my first batch of guests. I've got a few more. Um, so this has been a lot of fun. Appreciate you all listening and the feedback has been great. Again, if you don't mind, drop a review, email me your requests for guests or topics at mike at drumfactorydirect.com, and I will see you next week.